Hello, and welcome everyone to the second episode of The Dead Scene. I want to thank everyone for listening to the first and some of the feedback that I've gotten from the listeners. I appreciate that. I hope everyone had a safe and fun Halloween. Today, we are going to be talking about some of the gross parts of my job. I do want to start off with this warning. Content presented may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. So today I'll dish on some of the more memorable cases I've investigated in my career. And depending on who asks, that can mean so many different things. Um, You know, a lot of people ask me, oh my gosh, what was your coolest case? Or what was your grossest case? Or what was your creepiest case? Some other people want to know if a scene ever made me want to puke. For the record, only one scene has made me want to throw up. Some want to know what's the craziest homicide I've ever investigated, maybe the most memorable suicide. Uh, I always have a few cases that pop in my mind when I'm asked these questions. I tend to compartmentalize them in little folders in my brain uh, based on what type of scene it is. And today I am going to focus on some of the more gross scenes that I've investigated or what most people consider gross. When you're in the industry for a while, you tend to have a skewed and jaded thought of what is gross. So some of this may be really disgusting to some. So like I stated before, please use your discretion when listening. Some of my grossest scenes that I have investigated are by far the people who have been long dead and have not been found for a while for various reasons, as we call them, the decomps. That is short for decomposition. Decomposition is a natural and necessary part of the death process, but it ain't pretty. Uh, The body grows through some pretty drastic changes between the time of death and skeletonization when it's out in the natural elements. Of course, when somebody is embalmed, that changes and the body decomposes a different way. But those that are left into the natural elements, they go through a different and quicker process of decomposition than those who have been embalmed or treated. And I want to start off by saying, for the record, vapor rub doesn't work very well in masking decomp smell. Um, It may save you from smelling that putrid dead smell while you're in the scene, but once you wash it off your upper lip or out of your nose, you will smell it on you. It permeates your clothes, it permeates your skin, permeates your hair, and you may have to take several baths before you stop smelling it, several showers, hot showers, before you stop smelling it on you. So while vapor rub can help in the immediate time frame for long term, you're still going to smell it. So first off, I want to give you a short breakdown of the decomposition process. Uh, there are five stages of decomposition. So the first stage is after death, your body temperature usually is 98.6 degrees. Um, The body does start to cool to match the surrounding temperatures. And depending on what time of year that is and where the person dies, like inside versus outside, will determine how long that takes. If a person dies in summer, obviously the entire decomposition process is sped up. Uh, Within the first few minutes of death, the bacteria in your body start to get to work. And then there are the flies. They arrive fairly quickly, laying eggs in almost immediately um, in the moist areas of the exposed body, like the eyes, the nose, the mouth, other areas, if exposed, if you get my drift, um, they do like to go into the warm crevices of the body as well. 
Once these eggs are laid, we know what comes next. It's the maggots. They usually hatch within 48 hours of being laid. Um, I saw many a maggot in my day as a death investigator, and they usually don't bother me too much. Um, but if there's massive amounts of maggots, and depending on where they are on the, on the body, I would definitely get wigged out. But they were almost a daily part of my life for so long, so they don't really bother me too much. So after the flies start laying the eggs, um, the next part of decomposition after the body cooling is then the bloating starts. So there are bacteria that are in your body, naturally. And after death, they begin to work interiorly to break down the body basically from the inside out. This creates a lot of gases, which in turn bloats the body. The gases are also able to escape through various parts of the body, such as the mouth, the anus, and that stuff is does not smell good at all. There's been plenty of times when I've had to investigate a decomped decedent and had to roll the body and onto their stomach and the gases escape. Not pleasant. Not pleasant at all. It's a smell that you don't forget. Stage three of decomposition, the body starts to actively decay. Um, liquids are being released from the body. The skin looks like it's melting and it'll start to slough off layer by layer. The maggots are feasting. Other bugs and animals show up at this time. Many times body parts will be scattered because of the animal activity. So the animals will be able to gnaw through the skin to, you know, the bone and maybe able to remove an arm, a leg, depending on how large the animal is. I have had a case where the skull was found a whole year after the body, the decomposition body was discovered. Um, because in the words of the law enforcement investigator, coyotes got the head. So that was quite interesting. Um, stage four of decomposition is when all of the soft tissue is gone and there are some other things like ligaments, tendons left. Um, of course, you can see bone, there's hair. Bugs like beetles will gnaw at the bones to get all of the remaining flesh off as well as some, some of the other animals. This process brings you to the last stage, which is skeletonization. So you have the bones of the body left uh, out in the elements, and this is where like bleaching from the sun can occur to make the bones look really white. So at decomposition scenes, there could be lots of bugs and sometimes uh, animals present. Not many bother me, but the amount of maggots uh, sometimes do bother me. Having to brush them aside to do my job was one thing, but when I had to physically sweep them off of the body like a blanket, that was really gross and... I did not like that. <laughs> so one of those scenes that had a large amount of maggots were a um, gentleman who decided to shoot himself outside in the middle of summer in Florida. I got the call and arrived at the scene and I could smell the scene from the parking lot I had to park in to get to the scene. He was located kind of in a woodsy area near a business just near a business parking lot. So once I got into the parking lot of the scene, I could already smell him. So as I walked to the scene, I, you know, took notes as I usually do and was trying to get the information of the decedent. And I noticed that he did not have a shirt on. And I was some yards away from him asking the investigators. And I was like, okay, so is this a white male? And they were like, no, this is a black male. As I got closer and noticed that the 
why I thought he was a white male is because of the amount of maggots on his body. So that was one of the instances where I had to sweep them off of the body to look for wounds, um, maybe any injuries that he may have had because maggots tend to really cluster on any any wounds that are bleeding or any open wounds on the body. So we do have to move them aside to inspect the body well. Well, I could put up with the maggots in most of those scenes. There were a few insects that I did not have any kind of liking for and wanted them all to burn in hell. One of those would be roaches. The American cockroach is disgusting. I've hated them before I worked at the medical examiner's office. And when I found out that they actually eat on a dead body, it just made me hate the vile vermin even more. I had a scene once where I did have to encounter roaches um, and maggots all in the same scene. Uh, They had a gentleman who committed suicide in his home, in a recliner in his home. And when I arrived at the scene, began taking my pictures and taking my notes as I got closer to the body, I noticed that there were not only maggots, but there were numerous amount of cockroaches on his body. And I almost quit that day because I did not want to have to deal with that. But they are part of the decomposition process, unfortunately. I was able to get some of the law enforcement agents to shoo them away so I could do my job, but there was no way that I was going to touch any of those things. He also had maggots in his nose and mouth because he did shoot himself in in his mouth in the palate area, so the injury went up into his brain. And flies can find their way into the home. In this instance, I could see them on the windows before I even entered the residence. He had like I said, maggots in his nose and mouth. And once the roaches were gone, I went to touch his face to try to examine for the gunshot wound and the maggots disappeared from his nose and mouth when I touched his face and retreated up into his brain cavity. That was one of the scenes where I almost puked. Just the thought of them retreating in there just uh, I don't know it was disgusting I mean I'm pretty sure some of you are probably turning green right now thinking about that as well so just wanted to share those that little tidbit of information with you about roaches as well another animal that I have seen um, at death scenes but will not encounter if I don't have to then and now or rats rats as well as most animals I'm not just picking on these, you know, maggots, roaches, and rats, just the ones that I hate the most, but most animals will eat on a decedent. They're animals. Their will is to survive. So they they will eat when they can and how they can. Uh, we had a case of, this was not my case. This was actually my coworker's case who I will not say her name because I did not get an okay from her about this. But if she's listening, she probably will remember this case very well of a gentleman who was kind of a recluse who died in his home. Um, it was in the Fort Walton Beach area behind a local restaurant. That's where his house was uh, in a dwelling. He wasn't homeless. It was an actual dwelling. Um, But he was kind of a recluse, kind of, he may have been squatting in that house. I'm really not sure if he owned it or not, but I know that there was A, no running water and B, no electricity. So this gentleman was living in squalor in this home and apparently decided to befriend rats. Uh, He had a few as pets um, that lived with him that he would feed. 
Unfortunately, he passed away, I believe, of natural causes. I don't think there was anything suspicious about his death, but my coworker had to go to the scene at night into this dark house, and she said she got there and shined her flashlight inside so she could see and saw a number of red beady eyes that were in the house. At that point, I probably would have turned around and left, but she was very brave and went inside to do her death investigation. Um, she found the gentleman in his bedroom, in his bed, I believe, or on the floor, somewhere in the bedroom. And unfortunately, he had been dead for a little while, wasn't completely decomposed, but the rats had eaten his face, devoured his face to the skull. So while he was kind to the rats before his death, they in turn were not kind to him after. Also part of the decomposition process could be mummification. No, I'm not talking about the mummies in Egypt. While this process is similar, they were actually prepped to be this way but people can become mummified in natural elements that they die in or in their home. It's not very common in our area or the South in general because of the humidity levels, the Southeast. Um, but every now and then we would get a mummified case. It is more common out in like the Western areas of the country where it's very dry and arid. That will promote mummification over decomposition usually. Every now and then we would get a mummified body here. So basically instead of the putrefaction and like I was talking about the bloating, the sloughing of the skin, uh, the body will just kind of dry out and almost look like leather. It can happen here in in the southeast or any any place with humidity if a person is kind of in a direct line of dry airflow. Um, I did have a case where this did occur with a woman who died inside her home. This was a case in Gulf Breeze. Uh, she lived in a populated neighborhood on a golf course, but unfortunately, she passed away. Uh, from natural causes, but nobody checked on her for over a month. Uh, she had family. Um, she had neighbors, obviously. And the only reason that law enforcement was called for a welfare check, I believe, was that the neighbor was concerned about the amount of mail that was in her mailbox, uh, which was stuffed full. I don't know. I don't remember exactly when the last time she was last known alive was, but it had been over a month prior to her being discovered. She died in her bathroom and was directly under an air conditioner vent, which was pointed at her body. And this constant airflow actually just promoted her to become mummified. And her skin was very leathery, very hard, completely different from, you know, the, the decomp scenes I was used to. So it was just interesting how her placement of death caused her to just decompose a little different than, you know, if she was outside in the heat or not directly under a source of airflow. Another one of the more disgusting or maybe the most disgusting scene I've ever investigated involved a full-fledged hoarder. Um, could have been on the show. Was legit, just hoarded everything. We had to actually enter that death scene through the window in his bedroom. That was the only, we couldn't even open the front door to get into his house because stuff was piled up so high that it wouldn't allow you to open the front door fully. He was found in a little trail between the things he had piled up in his house, but I think in his living room area, I really could not tell you a distinct room besides the kitchen and the bathroom because of plumbing, uh, where things were in his house. But he had probably two feet of trash on the floor, even in the little trails that he had created 
to move around in his home, but everything else was just piled from floor to ceiling with stuff. He had piles of trash bags and newspapers and you name it, it was in there. I fully suspect that there were rats and other animals living in there. I thankfully did not see any of them and did not encounter any of them when I was in there. No activity on the body as well. Um, he was very decomposed. I think maybe he had been seen two months prior to him being found in his home in a welfare check. So quite unfortunate that some people are left, you know, haven't been checked on for months and living like that and nobody knows or cares enough to help. It's you encounter so much. <laughs> doing what I did. Another question with decompositions that often come up or how do you identify these people? Like if you can't, usually when a person dies, we're able to identify them with a valid ID picture identification. Uh, We can look at their driver's license and, you know, okay, yeah, this person is this person because the pictures match, or at least with the ID says there are. And if picture identification is an option, there are several other options that we can use to ID Uh, someone that can't be done with a picture. Contrary to popular belief, DNA is not the first option that at least we would use back then. DNA was quite expensive, DNA testing, and it took forever. I think it's way easier now than it was when I was working at the ME's office, but I'm not sure how many medical examiner's offices or coroner's offer offer that as the first option of identification for people. Um, We kind of had a priority chart on what to use first. Uh, DNA was not first, it was last. So if we could not find A, dental records, B, fingerprints, DNA was the, the last resort. So if the decedent had teeth, we would have to find dental records and uh, we would try to identify them that way by either asking the family if they didn't have any family friends, if they were like my gentleman in the last case that I talked about, didn't have any, and he was a recluse and a hoarder, and I couldn't have found a record in that house if I if it saved my life, I would have to search for dental records. So in the case of the hoarder gentleman, I actually sent a medical records request to hundreds of dental offices in our area to try to find some kind of, uh, you know, dental record. I even contacted his previous employer to see if he had dental insurance to try to go that route and see if I can find a dentist that way. He did not. I just did a blanket mass email request for dental records for dental offices and actually found one. So that proved successful and we were able to identify him with his dental records. His dental records which contained x-rays. So that's particularly what we're looking for is x-rays. So we can get a physical x-ray, dental x-ray from a dentist and we can take, we could take x-rays with our own x-ray equipment that we have. And then we could compare, well, the medical examiner would do the comparison. If she had any issues and didn't really feel comfortable doing it, she would send it off to a forensic odontologist who could make the comparison for us and write up a report. But usually she would do the comparison, cavity fillings or tooth implants or, you know, various things, dental procedures that you can see in x-rays and on the medical records. And we can compare it to the jaw of the decedent. 
The second was fingerprints. While working at the medical examiner's office, we did fingerprint every decedent that came into our office um, and kept them in their file. Fingerprints would only work, though, if the deceased had them on file somewhere, either if they were in the criminal justice system before they we could search, you know, through FBI avenues and get fingerprints that way. Um, if they had to take fingerprints for work. For their employer, we could get fingerprints. We could get a fingerprint records that way. And actually, I went to training to do fingerprint comparisons. Uh, so I was able to, you know, do the comparisons for our office to positively identify those decedents who could not be identified through dental records. So that's another show. I'm going to talk about fingerprints for sure in a whole nother episode because that is also my passion as well. So just like DNA, fingerprints are very reliable and um, because they are unique to everyone. Um, Not even identical twins have identical fingerprints. So everyone has their own little nuances in their fingerprints and different things that you can identify to positively ID somebody. Last resorts for identification. If we don't have any options for dental records or fingerprints, we tried not to do DNA, even though that is it, it could be an easy solution. It really wasn't because sometimes those results could take months to half a year to come back. Um, so we wanted to give the family closure possible before that time frame if, if that was an option. So we could also go to family members or friends and maybe get identifications through tattoos or scars that the decedent had on their body. Family members said, oh yes, my person had a knee replacement a few years ago. Well, we could take a picture of that scar on the knee, show it to them so they could say, yes, that is accurate. That That is them. That is their scar. And we could get medical records to corroborate that. Then that could also be a positive identification. Tattoos are another option. While we could ask the family to identify or describe the tattoos that the person may have had on their body. If that same person was in the criminal justice system, we could also get that information from jail records. Uh, they do make notations of, of tattoos on the body. So that's two ways to corroborate uh, identification. I hope you enjoyed this episode of kind of some of the grossest things that I've encountered. If you'd like to hear more about this, please feel free to comment on the Dead Scene podcast, Instagram, Facebook. I'd love to hear your feedback. I'd love to hear your questions. I would be happy to answer questions. There's lots of quarry parts in death investigation, but decomp scenes were probably one of my least favorite. I always remember coming home from a scene and my husband would make me change in the garage. He wouldn't even let me in with the clothes because he could smell it. He, he knew. He was like, you smell disgusting. You can't even come in the house. If you have any other questions about that, I am happy to answer. Drop a comment in, on the socials under this episode. Also, if you guys want to hear something about a particular part of my job or a certain death or a certain death investigation, please uh, let me know. I'd be happy to focus on that for an episode as well. But until then, I appreciate you listening and I hope you have a wonderful week and everybody stay safe and stay alive.